Our sermon passage this morning is uh, just another single verse sermon passage, Philippians chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, this is a verse you may all have memorized by now, possibly. That's our sermon passage. Uh, our scripture reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 1 and 2. That's our scripture reading. That's where we will go first, and then we will uh, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 2 for our sermon passage. Brothers and sisters, a reminder, this is the Word of God. It is deserving of your full attention. So please tune your your mind into uh, the hearing of the Word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now turning, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 2. Here the Apostle Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you again for the precious gift that is your word. We thank you that each and every verse, indeed each and every word, is a gracious gift. It is as honey dripping onto our tongues. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to to love and highly esteem your word. Because we know that it comes from you. Lord, please give us wisdom, give us understanding. Teach us, O Lord, by your spirit, we pray, as your word is preached now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words comprise verse 2 of chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, and they also comprise the text for this morning's sermon. It's a brief text that is true. It's not a commensurately brief sermon, but that's okay. Now, you hear this verse every single week. If you're in this church, more or less, you hear this verse said to you, spoken to you. But have you ever stopped to consider just what it is that you are hearing? These words are what have come to be known as the apostolic salutation portion of a church's worship liturgy. Or what we at Mid-Cities have come to call God's word of greeting. This salutation of Paul, and the very similar salutation that Peter uses in his two letters, one of which we read at the beginning of the worship service this morning, this salutation of Paul is far more than simply a rote greeting. It's more than just a a simple formality. One commentator writes this. Listen to this. I'll read it somewhat slowly, but I won't read it twice. This commentator says, The greeting, then, is not paying lip service, but is a prayer for them to receive the full beneficence of God in providence, especially salvation, perseverance under pressure, ministry, protection, provision, generosity, harmony, and unity, joy, hope, love, and eternal life. When have you ever heard such a short verse receive an explanation for it that is three times as long? And yet here we have one. Now, you might not have thought about all of this when you've heard this greeting over the years, but it is indeed a prayer for you, just as it was a prayer for those Philippians to whom Paul writes in this letter. 
Paul uses this exact phrase in eight of the 13 letters that he composed that have ended up in the New Testament. Romans, he uses it there at the beginning of Romans. He uses it at the beginning of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He uses this exact phrase in the exact order in all of those letters, just as he uses it here in Philippians. But in the other five letters that Paul wrote, he, he doesn't use the exact same wording, but he uses some variation of it, such as you can find in 1 Timothy, where he greets Timothy with these words, grace, mercy, and peace from, the, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The greeting in our passage, as with the greetings in all of Paul's letters, is a heartfelt prayer to the saints at Philippi his brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom came to faith in Christ through his ministry there in Philippi. And when Paul speaks of grace, what is he speaking of? We hear this word all of the time. We sing songs about it all of the time. At every funeral you go to, it's very common to hear the song Amazing Grace, that great hymn. What does it mean? When Paul speaks of grace, he is speaking of God's unmerited favor. The Greek word for grace, many of you are probably familiar with it, charis, it's used 155 times in the New Testament. That, the noun is. 100 of those are used in Paul's letters. But the word charis, it has an Old Testament background to it as well. And this is what informs Paul's use of it in the New Testament. Paul was a scholar of the Old Testament. He knew the Greek Old Testament, what's known as the Septuagint. He knew it backwards and forwards. He probably had it memorized. And so he understood the Old Testament usage for that word. So uh, in the times where uh, charis is used in, in, the, in the Greek Old Testament, it's used 158 times. It's used most often to translate the Hebrew word favor. Now, if you were to go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 3, you would see the word favor used there. Abraham says to God, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And the same word, the Hebrew word, the English translation of which is favor, the Greek translation of which is charis, this same word is used elsewhere as in Exodus chapter 3, verse 21, when the Lord is speaking to Moses from the, the, the bush that just won't burn. And he says of his people, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. Of course, he's speaking of, of the exodus out of Egypt. And when the, when the people go, the, the Israelites leave, they, they're going to plunder the Egyptians. They won't go empty handed. In this passage in Exodus, we see clearly that the favor of God comes to his, his people as a gift. And this... And the Old Testament's other instances of the word, this is what informed Paul's understanding of that Greek word, charis. So when Paul uses the word in his letters, according to one commentator, it has a wide range of nuances, broadly based around God's generous, unmerited beneficence and human thankfulness. Notice he doesn't say it has a wide range of meaning. Depending on the context, it can mean one thing and then something completely different in a different context. It has a wide range of nuance, but a, but a rather narrow meaning. Now, I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating. The, the words of one of my former pastors, he said something like this, God's love to sinners, it's not unconditional, it's contra-conditional. 
Despite the fact that prior to our knowing him, we hated him, he showed forth his love to us. He loves us despite who we once were. To merit something is to get something that we deserve. If we merited salvation, that would mean that we have earned it. But the only thing that we merit, the only thing that we deserve, the only thing that we truly have earned in this life because of our sin and our sinfulness is God's eternal punishment in hell. That's what we've merited. That's what we deserve. To think that we've merited our salvation, that we have earned it ourselves through, through good works, through good thoughts, is to think of ourselves as a gift to God which is quite the opposite of reality. The reality is that we are nothing short of a royal pain to God. God's favor is given to us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Despite the fact that we were a royal pain to Him, and maybe occasionally now, after regeneration, still are. In Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes this, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God's grace is not grace. If it is, His unmerited favor is not unmerited if it is bestowed to us on the basis of our works. Even if those works are ones that God foresaw before the foundation of the earth when He looked down the annals of history, it can't be based on our works. Because if it were, there would be no such concept as grace with regard to our salvation. Now, I don't want to put thoughts in your minds or words in your mouths, but some of you may be wondering why, if Paul calls the Philippians saints at the beginning of this letter, just one verse prior, does he pray for them in this greeting to have grace? Haven't they already gotten God's grace if they are saints? In answer to the second of those two questions that some of you might be asking, the answer is yes. If you are a saint, you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and have been given the gift of faith. If you have this, then you have already received God's grace. So yes to that answer. But while regeneration, being born again, marks the beginning point of our salvation, regeneration is not the ending point of our salvation. It is not the, the, the sum of salvation. Another way to think of it is that justification is not the sum total of our salvation. We have been justified. That took place at regeneration. We were declared to be righteous in God's courtroom because of the righteousness of Christ that has been counted as our own righteousness. But justified believers in Christ still sin. And God continues, uh, God deals with that continuing sin through the process of sanctification. Justification is a free gift of God, and sanctification is too. They are both of grace. We need ongoing grace to deal with ongoing sin. As we sing in Amazing Grace, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Paul is praying here, then, not as for those who are unregenerate, not as for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying for the saints. He's praying by means of this greeting that the Philippian saints will continue to have grace. That they'll continue in God's grace. But Paul is also praying by means of this greeting 
He's praying that the Philippian saints will continue to have peace. Now, peace is not the domain of hippies and anti-war protesters. The reality is that true peace only comes to humanity from God. Increasingly, it appears that in the view of our society, religion in general and Christianity in particular is the enemy of peace. But true peace only comes from God because sinners are engaged in war with God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul will say later on in Romans chapter 5 that we were once enemies of God. He writes in chapter 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. He's saying we used to be enemies before we were called by God's Spirit. Now the Greek word for peace is where the English term irenic comes from. And some of you may be familiar with this word, some of you may not. It's somewhat of a, an archaic and unused word in English. But irenic means, and I had to look this up just to make sure, it means favoring, conducive to, or operating toward peace, moderation, or conciliation. One commentator writes, in Roman thought, peace, or, or pax, was the supreme good related to freedom or rest from the state of war. Now, our scripture reading this morning from Isaiah chapter 40 is, is God declaring not a state of war, but a state of peace. And notice how in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 40, pardon for sin is linked to Jerusalem's, uh, to the declaration that Jerusalem's, which here is used as a stand-in for people's, uh, the people of God, uh, to declare that warfare is now ended for them. They have been, they've had their sins washed clean. They've had their sins dealt with. And so they are now at peace with the Lord. Now we, I think, would all agree that wars between nations come about ultimately because of human sin. If there weren't sin, there wouldn't be war between nations. We are at enmity with one another because we're sinful. But Isaiah 40 is not primarily about human warfare. Isaiah 40 is about the state of war between man and God. And this is not some kind of a cold war or a smoldering hostility. Humanity's uh, war against God is open rebellion. Now this word that is translated peace is found 292 times in the Greek Old Testament. It's used to translate the Hebrew word shalom. Many of you are probably familiar with that. Which one, according to one commentator, carries the sense of peace, wholeness, well-being, and individual community, and national health, security, and prosperity. That's what shalom means. The word translated peace in the New Testament, it's used 92 times. Now Paul only uses the word peace three times in the book of Philippians, but he uses it 40 other times in the other 12 letters that are in the New Testament. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. We sang that in the hymn of preparation. Christ is our peace. Jesus has brought peace between God and man. He has broken down the hostility, the, the, the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16 says that he has done this, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
If by faith we are united to Jesus Christ, then we are no longer at war with God. And that is the, the vertical dimension to peace. Peace between God and man. But there's also a horizontal dimension to peace. Peace between man and man. And Paul's prayer here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 2 would relate to that dimension as well. Paul is praying that they will, would be at peace, that they would continue to be at peace with God, but also that they would be at peace with their fellow man. First and foremost in the local body, but even uh, into the wider world. Well, how do we know that this is of great concern for Paul for the Philippians? One of the reasons that Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, not necessarily the, the, the main reason, but one of several, is that there has been some kind of a conflict. There's been some disagreement that has erupted between two women in the church at Philippi. Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I love and long for, my, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, also ask, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, something has happened. It doesn't seem to have been a major eruption, a major problem, but it's big enough that it's come to Paul's attention in prison in Rome. And so Paul is writing directly to these women. He's asking them to agree in the Lord. And he's also asking someone else, this unnamed true companion of verse 3, to come alongside these women and to help them come to terms. Now, now it's not just a, a problem among women in the church. It's, it's a problem among sinners in the church who are made up or comprised of men and women, boys and girls. We have conflicts in the church. It just happens. We're, we're all thrown in together in this little building, a bunch of sinners, and, and we, we sin against each other. And what do we do about it? Well, Paul is, is urging these women, entreating these women to agree in the Lord. These are women, he says, who have labored together. They've worked side by side with one another in the fields of the Lord. They've been working in the church and something has happened. A breakdown of the relationship has taken place and he is urging them to work things out. Now you know what one of the main sources of conflict in our home among our children is. Do you know what it is? It's toys. Our kids fight over toys. They squabble over who plays with what toy and what is done with the toys when they're being played with. Now, it's funny how insignificant things to us can be so large to our children. But we adults aren't so different, are we? We just squabble, squabble over things we consider to, to be significant, which in the grand scheme of things aren't really so big. So many times the conflicts in our churches are along the lines of, she said this to me or, or he did that to me. And I hope God looks down on us with more patience than how I so often look down on my children when they're fighting over a rescue bot or something like that. Brothers and sisters, you have been given so much from God. You have been given salvation. You have been given re reconciliation with Him. You are no longer His enemy. You have had so much grace bestowed to you. Be gracious to others. 
You have had peace given to you between you and God. Be at peace with each other. When someone sins against you, in this church, you have exactly two options for how you deal with it. You have an obligation to make sure that the other person, what they've done to you that you think is sin, actually meets the biblical requirements for sin, the biblical definition of sin. And so the two options you have when someone for sure sins against you, you either must meet with that person, you must speak the truth in love with them, you must confront them about their sin against you, or you must choose to put the sin away. You must cover over that sin with love. You must choose to let it go. And you need to repent for the times that when you've chosen to just put that sin away, that you allow it to resurface in your mind. You do not have as an option to nurse bitterness against a person for a sin that they have committed against you. They may not even know that they have done it. You don't have as an option. You don't have as an option complaining about that person and what they have done to you to other people. You don't. To do these things in the church is to engage in warfare with the people for whom God has brought about peace. Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi, Paul's prayer for the church at Bedford, Texas is the same. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is your duty, brothers and sisters, it is your job as believers in Christ and members of this church to be about the work of making peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. The mess that this church has gotten itself into, that we're dealing with in our presbytery, is largely the result of people making war with one another and failing to do the right thing in dealing with that sin. And no church is immune to that. No church is immune to those things. One final thing to note about this greeting of Paul's here in Philippians 1 verse 2. It is steeped in Trinitarian theology. Now God the Father, God the Son, they're explicitly mentioned in Philippians 1 verse 2, but God the Holy Spirit is very much implied here. This verse is reflective of the fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to us. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is, that is orthodox Christian doctrine. That's what we believe. Paul prays for grace and peace to be to you from the Father and the Son. We might say that he is praying for grace and peace to proceed from the Father and the Son to you. So in that sense, the Holy Spirit is implied. But he's implied in another sense as well. It is through the Holy Spirit that God's grace and peace are applied to the believer. 
Now, with regard to our salvation, it is God the Father in whom the plan of salvation originated. It is God the Son by whom the plan of salvation is accomplished. And it is God the Spirit through whom the plan of salvation is applied to sinners. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Salvation means experiencing God's grace and peace. Such blessing has its origin in the love, the plan, and the power of the great triune God. It is Trinitarian theology, what Paul is preaching here, what he's teaching here to these people. Peter, in his greeting to the saints in 2 Peter, which is found at the top of your bulletins in the order of worship, it it offers an insight into Paul's prayer for the Philippians to have grace and peace. Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, sometimes we Reformed folk, we are accused of being obsessed with knowledge, information, facts. We're accused of being just too bookish. We thrive in the theoretical and fail in the practical. And and perhaps some of that is true. Oftentimes, there's there's at least a kernel of truth in a caricature. But that doesn't mean that we simply have to, we've got to abandon the pursuit of, of understanding and of knowledge. Faith must always have an object, and true faith is a reasonable and a well-reasoned faith. We have to understand as much as we can about the one in whom we have faith. And Peter indicates that there is a multiplication, an increase of grace and peace that comes by, or perhaps through, or perhaps in, the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more you know the Lord the more multiplied in your life is grace and peace. That's what Peter seems to be saying here. The more we understand about God, the more we know and understand about grace and peace, the more it will be multiplied in us. The more we know and understand about how great and heinous is our sin, the more we will be thankful for God's grace and the peace that He has established between Himself and us. Brothers and sisters, this is the grace of God. That while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, and by His death, by His death, we have peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. It is true. It is real. You can partake of it in this life right now. It's not hypothetical or theoretical. He has given it to you as gracious gifts, grace and peace. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you, O Lord, that you have bestowed upon us these precious gifts. Grace, which is a gift, which means gift, is indeed itself a gift. And peace. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grow us in our knowledge and our understanding of who you are. Our knowledge of our sin. Our knowledge of grace and peace. That we might grow in these things. Lord, we pray that you would teach us by your Spirit how to love you and how to love one another. We pray that you would remind us that we 
are no longer at war. Our warfare has ended. Praise the Lord. That you, O Lord, have caused us to lay down our arms that we had raised in hatred against you. We pray, dear Lord, that we would not raise them up and bear them against you or against one another. We thank you, dear Lord, for grace and peace. And we pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.